So last week, last week, we're going through the Gospel of John, right? So last week, we left Jesus and his disciples in Samaria. Last week, we left Jesus and his disciples in Samaria. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you're pointing. I thought you've asked me. Oh, children, you're dismissed. That's right. With your, you mean, yes, awesome. Thank you. They were trying to get my attention for so long, and I'm just, I just, Sandy, who am I? <laughs> what is my child? What do I do? All right, so the kids are gone. Awesome. You were left. Last week, we left Jesus and his disciples in Samaria, um, where a Jew would not want to be found, left, even for a couple days like they were there. And they were welcoming non-Jewish converts into the new kingdom of God. Wasn't that exciting? I mean, to see that expansion already. And so there's a map up there to give you kind of, those of you who love geography, it kind of gives you an idea of what, what's going on. It shows you how Jesus went through Samaria, but he could have gone around like all the other good Jews did because you didn't want to dirty yourself by going through their territory. But he went right smack dab through the, through the middle. And now as John chapter 4 closes out, uh, Jesus returns back to kind of his home ground, right? Back to the area of northern Galilee, and particularly in John 4, John makes note, says he's going back to Cana of Galilee. What happened a couple weeks ago in Cana of Galilee? Water to wine. Yes, first sign of seven signs that John picks out to show us the water to wine. It said in John 2, it said this, this the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's what all these signs are pointing to, that Jesus is the Son of God. And this one was for his disciples, and his disciples believed in him. Show me your glory. Did you ever ask God that? Well, Jesus did, and Jesus does. He has shown us his glory, and we're going to see more of that as John unfolds. But here in Galilee, which is really interesting, Jesus receives a different response than the one that he got in Samaria from non-Jews. Uh, these Galilean Jews, they would have already witnessed and definitely heard about the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus had done when he was in Jerusalem. We read it back in chapter 2, verse 23. John recorded, now when he was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And many of them these Galileans were just getting back from the trip, the pilgrimage, the yearly pilgrimage for the Passover, um, the same one that Jesus is returning from. They're all heading back home after this time of festivity and remembrance. And remember, that's what brought Nicodemus to Jesus on that night in Jerusalem was the signs. You've got to be from God to be doing this. So, but as it unfolds, as John lets us in on What's really happening, it seems that these Galileans are interested, they're interested in Jesus, but they're interested for his entertainment value. Um, they want to see what you can get out of Jesus. Now, let's hold on a minute before we point the finger and say, oh, how could they do that? Is this any different than our day in which you and I live? Come on, seriously. Isn't it entertainment? Entertainment? And then entertainment. Aren't you, like me, dismayed at times when you look at the state of the church and you see the same kind of pandering 
and showmanship in our modern-day church, and that's why there's crowds. That's why people are into it, because this need, this appetite for a big splash appears to be a very common malfunction in humans, me included, uh, regardless of the levels of our current uh, modernization or uh, commercialization, it was true then, it's true today. We want another miracle. <laughs> we want to be amazed. Amaze me. Do something I haven't seen before. We want a free drink. We want a free meal. And then we want it again, right? It's why I'm going to watch the Super Bowl next week. I'm going to watch it. I'm not going to watch it halftime. But I am going to watch the game. And I'm waiting for that amazing catch, that amazing run, that amazing defensive play, that amazing decision that changes the whole game. I'm waiting for that because I like, that's what I, I'm, I want to be amazed. But these people are not taking notice of what the miracles mean. That's the, it's not the miracles. They're, they're not taking notice of to whom or what these signs are pointing. That's the whole point of the miracles. It's not for the sake of the sick being healed, which is a big deal, but that's not the point. It's who is doing the healing. They've already forgotten the very simple message of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ, which was, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. That hasn't changed. The miracles just show this is the man who can do it. <laughs> and as Jesus is revealing, this is the God-man who can do it. And this is John's point. This is why John chose, well, actually, the next two signs that we're going to look at, hopefully this morning when we get through this, um, signs number two and signs number, th number three of the seven signs, to put more exclamation marks around the name of Jesus. That's why we're reading about all this. And you even detect a note of sarcasm in verse 40, 44 and 45. Drip, it drips from these, ver, from these verses. The Galileans welcomed him, John says. Oh, yeah, 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 they welcomed him, but apparently for all the wrong reasons. So when you come to a couple of verses later in verse 48, we find Jesus exposing this and making his own complaint with his own lips about the way they view him, where he says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. And this was the problem. They had more than enough evidence. Jesus had been fulfilling the promises before their eyes made about the Messiah that had been written in Old Testament scriptures hundreds of years ago. He's fulfilling them all. You can check them off. Boom, boom, boom. He's been performing miracles that pointed to his unique and divine authority. What gives you the right to do this? Well, watch me. I'll show you. He's, he's been doing this, but, but they just didn't see it. They didn't look to whom the signs and the wonders were pointing. They were just enjoying the ride. <laughs> hey, where are we going? Where is this train heading? I don't know, but it sure is fun. Hey, let, let's hurry up and get in line for the next one. You know, it's, it's just like you and me going to an amusement park. Well, at least one man is different. 
Thank the Lord, one man is different. Now, John can use as an example. One man was moving towards getting it, seeing it for what it was. Um, I wonder if today in this room or online there is a man or there is a woman listening who is starting to get it. It's start God's work in your life is starting to take root and you're starting to see you're starting to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is what is missing in your striving and your searching in this life, trying to make up for the sin of your life. There is only one answer. But look at what it takes to get this man here. I think most of us in this room can probably identify with this. Remember there were three there's three encounters I mentioned last week that Jesus has. After he cleanses the temple and really upsets the religious establishment, you have the, the meeting with Nicodemus. Then last week we had the woman at the well. And the third encounter, which also includes sign number two, third encounter includes sign number two, is this man. And he hasn't come to be entertained. This man was in desperate need. His son was dying. Can you, for a moment, try to Put yourself there, this life that you love is lingering and about to die, this, this, his boy. And he's a high-ranking official in the royal government, so he's able to afford the best doctors and all the current latest treatments, but nothing is working, and his last hope, his last resort is in this man called Jesus of Nazareth. And so he came not to gape in wonder, but to plead in desperation. You ever been there? And sometimes, am I going too far to say most times, this is how God reveals himself to you and me. Sometimes we just need to get to these desperate places before he can snap us out of it. That's the way we are. The official, verse 49, said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. That's all he says. And in his great compassion, Jesus Christ acts. But this time, it's not the way of a, uh, by, by, by way of a miracle um, that could be applauded, that could be seen, uh, that, that it could be in, in, the crowds there listening could be entertained by. He just assured the man of his son's healing by saying, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. That's it. If you're there, that's all you heard. That is all you saw. Go, your son will live. Nothing showy at all. Just his words. Because his word is enough. His word created the universe his word created the universe out of nothing. He spoke everything there is into existence. His word is enough. And the man's response to the word of Jesus, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Didn't ask for a sign, didn't ask for a wonder. And as he was going down, his servants met him, and they told him that his son was recovering. 
And this is a really significant development in the story that John's unfolding before us. So far, the people have been obsessed with his miracles and his signs without being able to see what the miracles are revealing. But here is a man who has seen. He's noted the signs. He's seen where the signs have been pointing. And as a result, he trusts whatever Jesus says. He just trusts it without, without the sight, without the, the sign. He just trusts Jesus' words. It doesn't seem to matter to him that there is no outward, spectacular manifestation. It's enough that Jesus has told him that his son will live. And how do I know this about this man? Because thanks to John, we know how the story ends. And we read in verse 53, so he, so he asked them, the servants that had come to tell him, the hour when his son had be, begun to get better. And they said to him, oh, it was yesterday, around the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. That's when the miracle kicked in, the, the sign, the wonder. And he himself believed, the text says, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Not just the man, but everyone in his house. Just like last week, it wasn't just the Samaritan woman, it was everybody in the town. John is repeatedly pointing this out to you and I and to the readers of his gospel. Jesus' own followers didn't really get this point until much later on. And so you and I have to stop right now and ask ourselves, as we walk about our average daily lives, whatever it is that you do on a daily basis, do we really get it like this man got it? like the Samaritan woman got it? Do we live like we get it? Well, John's not finished. He's just warming up. And so am I. I got lots of time. We're going to go through John chapter 5 today. And in in this section, this next section, it's a brand new section we're starting, from 5 to 7, there's going to be this shift that you're going to see over these three chapters. And And it's a shift from this mere hesitation about Jesus, this kind of skepticism about Jesus and what he's about to outright official opposition and hostility. So we'll do chapter 5, as I said. And Jesus is on a second visit to Jerusalem, next visit to Jerusalem. And I've divided chapter 5 in three sections so we can track with Jesus because it's really long. But I've got it in three sections here. And, And included in the very first section is the third sign of the seven signs that John's going to reveal to us that Jesus is the Son of God Here's the proof. Okay, section one, in verses one to nine, Jesus heals a man. How many men, men do you think he's healed up to this point? Probably thousands. I mean, I don't know. You read the other gospels, he's done a lot. But here's one, one example John gives us. Jesus heals a man. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. An invalid for 38 years. Let that sink in. What would that be like? And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a really long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? (laughs) Man, yeah. Like 38 years ago, yeah. 
And unlike the paralytic that you read about um, in Mark chapter 2 where his friends dig a hole in the roof and lower him and drop him at the feet of Jesus, uh, this man is picked out by Jesus from among all kinds of other invalids that are apparently around this pool that we'll talk about in a second. The sovereign initiative is with Jesus as led by his Father. There's no reason given. Why did Jesus pick that one guy out of them all? I can't answer it other than to say because that's the guy God told him to heal. What's God telling you today? Through his word. Are you going to do it? In verses 7 and 9, the sick man answered him, Sir, I've got no one. See, he's still putting his faith in this pool. that The water gets disturbed, kind of ripples, and then the first one in gets healed. Superstition. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up because I'm an invalid. And while I am going, another steps in front of me every time. He apparently held to this popular superstition that the first person in the pool, after it kind of ripples the water, however that happened, it's all kinds of theories about it, something miraculous happens and the first person in gets healed. And Jesus said to him, you don't need the pool. He didn't say that. I said that. Jesus said to him, get up. But I haven't gotten up for 38 years. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Just like the water back at that wedding in John chapter 2, the water in the purification pots at the wedding in Cana could not produce or even come close to the taste of the new wine of the coming kingdom. And just like the water from Jacob's well where that meeting, encounter with the Samaritan woman occurred could not satisfy the real inner emptiness and thirst of the Samaritan woman. So the promises of this superstitious water religion, whatever that was all about, and remember superstition is what rules most of our world today, the belief in things that aren't even true. It has no power to transform. It has no power to meet the true need that's in every one of us. Did you notice that all three had to do with water? Isn't that cool? That's John. That's God. So the man is physically healed. That's great, right? All in favor? Say aye. Here we go. Aye. But verse 9 ends with a foreshadowing and this foreboding if you're a Jew reading this. Now that day was the Sabbath. And everybody who's a good Jew is reading this going, uh-oh, this is not going well, not going to go well. So Jesus heals a man, yes, on the Sabbath. Section 2. John explains in section 2 that there are laws against work on the Sabbath, and it's a really, really big deal. In all four of the Gospels, disputes between Jesus and the religious authorities over the Sabbath, that would be from Saturday around sundown to, I mean, Friday around sundown to Saturday around sundown. That's the Sabbath. The disputes were so sharp that they figured prominently into the rising desire of the authorities to take Jesus out, to kill him, just to end him right now. So the Jews, it said, said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk around Jerusalem with your bed. 
And once again, and once they found out that it was Jesus who had done this, we read in verse 16, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You'd think, wouldn't you? You would think that people saturated with the Old Testament, like all these religious leaders were, would connect the dots, wouldn't you? And, and see that this miraculous healing is a messianic fulfillment of so many passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. When he comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Jesus is doing this. In the ears of the deaf unstopped, Jesus is doing this. Then shall the lame leap like a deer. Jesus just did this. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is doing this. But just like those Galilean Jews in the north, these Jewish Jerusalem Jews in the south missed it. It's like a complete whiff. Strike three. It's like they can't hit the curve. In Galilee, they were caught up in the moment, in the wonder of it all. And it's understandable. It's wild miracles. Here in Jerusalem, they can't see past their legalistic nose. Talk about not seeing the forest for the trees. And yes, if you're wondering, the Old Testament does forbid work on the Sabbath, Saturday. But then again, what is work? Well, Pete, I'll tell you what work is. According to the Old Testament Scriptures, the best we can see is that work refers to one's customary employment, like what you do for a living. But they had so overanalyzed that one point that they had come up with 39 different classes of work. 39. So if you go by the Old Testament standards alone without all the man-made additions, it's not even clear that the healed man was breaking any law at all since he did not normally carry mats around for a living. See how technical it gets if you want to go that way? It's like, I'm not breaking the law. This isn't what I do for employment. But according to the tradition of the elders, which was in the Old Testament, but was additional laws written to that, he was breaking one of those prohibited 39 categories of work that they had made up. What I see is these leaders can't rejoice even for a second in a man's healing from lifelong suffering because they're drowning in the minutiae of their man-made laws. Jesus is going to later call them blind guides. Let's go back to verse 17. But Jesus answered them. Here's what he said about that. My father is working until now. He hasn't stopped working, and I am working. I haven't stopped working either because this is what God does. Jesus didn't even bother arguing with them about the way they'd misinterpreted what was actually written in the Old Testament. Instead, he said that these Sabbath regulations that you're throwing at me, they have no more authority over me than they do over God himself. Ooh. Jesus simply went to the heart of the way it really is and who he really is. Just as God is always working out his purposes, so am I. He's saying I'm equal with God. That's why John uses this 
encounter with this man. This is why this is the third sign. I'm equal with God. And we know that's exactly how the leaders took what he said because in the next verse, 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Section three. This confrontation leads straight to Jesus' relationship with God the Father. And this is where Jesus wants it to go. And this is why John chose it. This is the reason he wrote the gospel. What the Bible teaches and what Jesus reveals in this next section is an amazing truth that you and I have to receive by faith. We've tried to explain it in so many different ways with so many different illustrations, but we always fall short. It defies simple explanations. What Jesus explained in his response to these Jews, what we understand today as the Trinity, is that there are three separate persons in the Godhead, three separate persons. The Holy Spirit is not a it, it's a he. You've got to remember that. And all three are one and the same at the same time. They're totally interrelated and interdependent. There are not three gods, which is common talk today. There is one God, but that one God comprises three distinct but equal interdependent persons. The Son is not the Spirit and is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son and is not the Father. The Father is not the Son and is not the Spirit, but each is God. Each is the very fullness of God, no more, no less. Does your brain hurt yet? It's supposed to because He's God. So in this section, Jesus corrected the wrong assumptions of these Jews because they thought about God in a whole different realm, a whole different way. And now it's like, what? You can't be God because that goes against everything. God is one. And if he's there and we think, we know he's there and you're here, how does that work? People have been asking that for 2,000 years. While claiming equality with God, Jesus also makes clear in this section that everything he's doing is in total and complete and absolute conformity to the will of the Father. His will be done, he will go on to say to the disciples. His will be done on earth, you finish it, as it is in heaven. Listen to the three truly truly's of Jesus as he goes through this section in John chapter 5. Verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. I'm getting involved in what God's doing, and I'm God. <laughs> For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Boy, that's going to come true, isn't it? So also the Son gives life to whom He will. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Yes, Jesus says, I'm the judge. I'm the giver of life. There were two things, according to the rabbis at the time, that marked out God from humans, that made him other. One, that he alone was the life giver, and two, that he alone was the judge of all. And these two things, the rabbi said, could not be done by any human being. They were entirely God's prerogative. You see it in passages in Genesis and Deuteronomy and, and in the Kings, Second Kings. And Jesus is saying that what marked God out as divine, those two things, giving life and judging life, also marked him out as divine. Second, truly, truly. Verse 24, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in me who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Yes, I grant eternal life. To whoever believes God's word, and by the way, I am God's word, I and I'm speaking God's word. Third, truly, truly, I say to you, there's an hour coming, and by the way, it's now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I may pause right now. Have you heard and do you live? Or are you still dead? For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, because we're probably all marveling right now, like this is... This is really big news. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Yes, I am the Son of God, and soon you're going to see that I am the Son of God when I come back to life. So, whose side are you going to be on in the resurrection that is coming? Jesus then went on to give three proofs of this claim to equality with God. Verses 33 and 35, he said, listen to John the Baptist. You guys said he was a prophet. He said that I am the Son of God. Jesus mentioned right here in this section the actual official Jewish delegation that we read about back in chapter 1 that was sent to ask John, who are you? Remember that? And there John was explicit in identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Two, he said in verse 36, look at my works. Don't just listen to John. Look at what I'm doing. How else can you explain what is happening in the world right now? It must be God at work. There's no other explanation. In fact, the whole context of their discussion is about what? The healing of a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Nobody can dispute this. He is now walking, probably dancing and running through Jerusalem, telling everybody, look at me. I can't believe this. I mean, what would you do? Oh, that's cool. I'm going to go home now. No, no, like you would, you would be like... Let me, show, let me tell you about this. And they're arguing over it. And the last thing, last point, learn from God's words. 
verses 37 to 40. Jesus points out that the Old Testament, God's Word, was continually pointing to Him. The prophecies about a coming Savior were about Him. The symbols and the ceremonies in the temple that are still going on at that moment with all the sacrifices and the high priests so that you can approach God are about Him. The historical passages about a rescuer coming to deliver people from God's enemies, those are about Him. Overwhelming evidence, you think? But the reality was they weren't even listening. This wall. They rejected categorically, categorically everything that Jesus was saying. So Jesus went on to give them three reasons why this is true. And it's not much different than today. This is why people can listen to what you and I say in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and just shut it down. Number one, performance-based religion. One of the most famous rabbis of the time was Rabbi Hillel. And he had taught the Jews that Jesus is talking to that by studying the words of the law, you could gain for yourself life in the world, world to come. He was repeating this age-old theory that's in every pagan religion, whatever you define as religious, that you can earn for yourself a place in the afterlife. Little wonder then that the teaching of Jesus was an affront to them. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures, this is the Old Testament, because you think that in them you will have eternal life because this rabbi told you so. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Jesus taught that salvation came through repentance of sin and faith in him alone. But they thought they were already in because they were born in the United States of America. I'm a Christian. They were righteous by birth, they said, by keeping the law, yada, 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 yada. We've all heard it all, right? We, maybe some of us have used some of those arguments at times. But they also rejected what Jesus was saying because of the second one, personal interest. Jesus said that people will follow anyone whose ideas and teachings best suits the way they want things to be. Uh, Paul called it, they will listen to teachers who tickle their ears. Boy, I, he's a good storyteller. He's funny. I'm going to So what he's saying must be true because he can say it so well. Verse 44, 43, I have come in my Father's name. That should be enough. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from, the one, from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Jesus' insistence on our inability to save ourselves is an affront to our human pride. That's why walls come up. Who are you to tell me that I'm not good? And the leaders listening to him hated him for it. And I use that word correctly, hated. The last one, why do people reject Jesus? Perverse thinking. And I don't think that's a strong enough word. Perverse thinking. 
To the Jews, Moses was their great hero. He was the one who brought them out of Egypt. He was the one who, who led them to their promised land. Moses was the one who gave them God's laws. They believed that it was through following those laws handed down by Moses that they would be delivered. But Jesus confronts them as He confronts you and as He confronts me this morning with the perversity of that kind of thinking, even in our modern day. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. He said, I don't even have to bring you before the Father. There is one who accuses you already. It's Moses, the guy you're putting all your faith in, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, if you really did believe Moses, you would believe me because, the war, because what he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see why they wanted to kill him? Moses gave the law so that people would realize their failure and their inability. Yes, before Jesus, we are failures. That's not really helpful language, is it, in our day and age? But it's true. Pete, don't say that about yourself. I'm not going to get saved until I do. <laughs> their failure and their inability, and then you seek God for salvation and look for God's coming deliverer. That's what the law was for. But what happened? The law became an end in itself. The Jews are rejecting the one Moses spoke of and pointed to. This is what, this is what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. That's Jesus. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Listen. Parents, you ever say that? Just listen. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, this is what Jesus is doing, I myself will require it of him. Today, people seem to be quite happy to obliterate the distinctions between God and humans. Have you noticed? We define God by human standards, by human characteristics. We fashion our own God out of the things that are acceptable to us, approachable, to make Him approachable, right? You definitely see this blurring in all the recent superhero movies. Don't... don't I'm all down on you for that. I'm just, I'm just telling you, that's the philosophy that's out there. In the exile, the Jews were convinced that idolatry, anything that you worship other than God, and most often that shows up in the worshiping of ourselves, the elevating of ourselves, was always wrong. God is wholly other. Isaiah said, to whom then will you compare God? Isaiah asked, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Who's God's equal? What's the answer? No one, says the Holy One. 